0: The Bane Free Radio
1: Hour. On the podcast, a voice from the past and big savings on Dave Butler ebooks. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David Afshirad. Well, DJ Butler is undoubtedly familiar to those of you who have listened to the podcast recently. And today we're celebrating the re-release of his Bain Books debut novel, Witchy Eye, which is being released as a trade paperback. Witchy Eye is book one in Dave's Witchy War series, a flintlock fantasy set in a magical Jacksonian America. The series now includes four novels, Witchy Eye, Witchy Winter, Witchy Kingdom, and Serpent Daughter, with two more in the works. For those who want to revisit the series or for new readers, we're replaying Tony Daniels' interview with Dave about the book. But first, the news. This month marks the release of not one, but two DJ Butler books. As we said, we are bringing Witchy Eye back into print as a trade paperback. And also March marks the release of Butler's latest novel, Time Trials, which was co-written by M.A. Rothman. To celebrate, we're offering discounts on all of the Witchy War series, as well as other books in Butler's backlists. For the month of March, get $1 off the Witchy War series, the Cunning Man series, which Butler wrote with Aaron Michael Ritchie, and the Indrajit and fix series as well as the standalone novel Abbott in darkness now these discounts are good wherever bane ebooks are sold and they will be valid through the end of the month and that's it for the news
2: I want to welcome dj butler to the podcast hello dave hey tony DJ Butler, Dave Butler, uh, grew up in swamps, deserts, and mountains. After messing around for years with the practice of law, he finally got serious and turned to his lifelong passion of storytelling. He now writes adventure stories for readers of all ages, plays guitar, and spends as much time as he can with his family. He's the author of City of the Saints, Rock Band Fights Evil, uh, Space Eldritch, which is very hard to say and uh, Kretschling, all from Wordfire Press, and now from Bain Books and at booksellers everywhere, new historical fantasy novel, Witchy Eye. So Dave, Witchy Eye is not exactly a debut since you've written a few books for Wordfire, but it is a pretty stunning piece of work from a newer novelist, I must say. It's, It's getting some rave reviews, too. Publishers Weekly gave it a starred review, and Larry Correa gave you a great author's review, which we've quoted on the dust jacket, by the way of course um he called it impressive creativity and depth uh, well i guess he was talking about the book and you you have a wonderfully evocative and lyrical prose style i found which is what i suspect set off the fireworks at pw uh tell us a little bit about how you came to writing fiction uh like so what's the dj butler creation myth
3: yeah that's a that's a good question so um Think uh, So I always wanted to be a writer, and for the short uh, synopsis is I chickened out for a long time. I, w- I, when I was a kid, my, my dad uh, was an economics professor, and he traveled to conferences, and when he had to be gone, he'd bring back a gift, and he brought back...
0: Uh, starting when I was about seven years old, he brought back books, and the first thing he brought was a
3: box set of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbits, and these were... The 25th anniversary Silver Jubilee edition, uh, Valentine paperbacks. They had those Daryl K. Sweet covers. Uh, uh, and uh, I crawled into my top bunk, uh, and and didn't come out of it until I'd read uh, the whole set. Uh, and, and I wanted to be a writer, and I remember I had a journal. And, uh, and, and, and I, instead of writing what happened in my day in the journal, I'd write bits of things that I, that I thought writers were supposed to write, starting with the back cover copy, which is I, I assumed how you would do it. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. I remember writing, uh, you know, uh, descriptions of a book or one, one or two word, uh, uh, teaser, to uh, one or two sentence teaser paragraphs that were, they were supposed to entice the reader in this book I hadn't yet written, um, so I uh, I was an avid reader, uh, especially fantasy. For a long time, I was trying to find Tolkien again. I think probably that's not true just me, but a lot of people, writers as well as readers, trying try, trying to capture the magic of reading Lord of the Rings for the first time. Uh, and, uh, and you never never quite find it again, but you find a lot of other wonderful stuff uh, on the way. And, and I thought I would be a writer... Uh, until I, uh, got through, got into college and was starting to face kind of reality and, uh, and the question of what I was going to do with my life and, and didn't really have a clear view of how I'd make money as a writer. Uh, and, uh, so I went to law school. And, uh, so I spent, oh, 13 years, uh, practicing law and, uh, always kept my hand in writing stuff in, in shorter form. So, uh, not short stories, but I wrote a lot of songs, which, by the way, I think shows up in Witchy Eye. There are uh, half a dozen original songs in the book, uh, uh, along with other kind of musical content. Um,
2: and yeah, there's some cool uh, cool lyrics, just like Tolkien. Okay.
3: Yeah, well, Tolkien remains a huge influence. Now, I'm going to do something Tolkien never did, which is uh, not I'm going to do, I'm currently doing. I am recording Witchy Eye, the album. I have a, uh, I have a home studio, and those those songs are not just lyrics; they're fully realized uh, compositions with melody and chord structure. And so, sometime later this year, um, I already got uh, the cover artist Dan Dos Santos' permission. I'll, I'll release a CD on the uh, on Amazon.
2: Oh, very cool! Um, we will definitely play some uh, some of those cuts here on the podcast if you want us to as well
3: would love to i will i will send you cds um so uh yeah so but that's all i did for 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 a lot of a lot of time a lot of years and then and then in 2010 a wonderful thing happened which was i got fired um and i got fired in the best possible way i got fired and given money and um my company had been taken over and uh and and so uh i had this opportunity to do uh, whatever i wanted for a short period of time and uh so i wrote i started writing and uh and uh my wife was was uh, uh very generous i'm not sure she was a believer at first i think she thought i would write a little bit and then go back to getting some lawyer job uh but actually uh i wrote uh prolifically and uh uh, right out of the gate, I got an agent, had him for a year, uh, lost the agent, started self-publishing. Uh, my wife got excited and started writing and and, uh, and ultimately picked up an agent. And she's got a book coming out from a random house imprint next year, too. So it's really become our small family business. Wow, very cool. Yeah, and then uh, and then uh, picked up an agent again, uh, uh, moved with my self-published list into Wordfire Press, which you mentioned, which is a um an up and coming mid mid independent publisher. I mean they've got a couple hundred titles. Uh so um uh, owned by Kevin Anderson out in Colorado. And uh, uh and then I picked up an agent and then and then in February of last year uh Tony uh Weiskopf made an offer on WitchI um which uh which is very exciting. I, I like all the things I've written. Um, and you gotta be careful, right? It's like, it's like your kids. You don't want to tell your kids which one is the favorite. That's never a good idea. Um, uh, but in some, in some real ways, Witchy Eye is sort of the song of my heart. It really is the thing that I wrote, um, that is in some ways pretty distinctively me, pretty, pretty different. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I am very, very excited, uh, to see it uh, finally coming into print.
2: Yeah, well, let's, uh, Witchy Eye, it's it's really accomplished full novel. Um, definitely part of a tradition as well. Um, I don't know if, if this is also part of your tradition as well as Tolkien. I'm talking about folk magic from America, whether it's British or Celtic or Scandinavian, but uh, a lot of times Scott Irish, um, and basing sort of a magical America either in the past or present on it. Uh, you know, I think about Manly Wade Wellman's Silver John stories, which I love, and. David Drake's uh, tribute dwellings such as old Nathan or Orson Scott Card with his Alvin the maker books. And there's just, I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of others are any of these influences on you. Um, tell us more about the inspiration for which you, in particular, as you've alluded to here, if you would. Yeah.
3: So, uh, so those, those are both bullseyes actually. And let me, let me give you some more. So I love the, uh, Silver John, the Balladier story. Those are, those are fantastic. And, I uh, I'm not sure when I read the first ones, but it was you know that is absolutely part of my uh, part of my palate uh, and and part of the, the background to which yeah, I, uh, I I love Alvin the makers uh, the Alvin the maker stories they're a little more kind of small fantasy but in terms of their setting they're probably the closest thing out there. Uh, to, uh, to Witch EI. is more epic, and, and there are some other differences we can talk about. But, uh, so in terms of, uh, of other stuff though, let me, let me, let me throw in a, a few more things in there. So, so I, um, about 2011, when I was uh, getting ready to write my next project, uh, I was looking at a few books at the same time. So I was reading to my kids. Brothers Grimm fairy tales, mm-hmm. um, and uh, at the same time, I had uh, I had uh, I can't remember which one, but I was reading a history of the Thirty Years' War in kind of early modern Germany. And uh, it's sort of silly to make this realization this late, but but you know, uh, I, I sort of uh, connected those two pieces and said, "Oh, you know, this isn't the the Brothers Grimm uh, setting." Settings in which you have both princesses and also lords mayor right Alderman and town council, but also an emperor like that's that's early modern germany uh, and, that, and and I sort of made that click and and uh, uh and I thought you know I'd really love to write something in this in this setting, so much fantasy tends to be medieval or now urban. Uh, I'd like to write something in kind of a pre-modern Germany. Now, about that time, I started reading a a historical, a piece of history, a classic work called Albion's Seed by David Hackett Fisher. Oh, sure. And, yeah, so, so for listeners who may not recognize that, that is about the early English migrations, plural, migrations, into north america because the, the basic point is this we think about uh we think about english migration to america as being a, a single stream but actually they're are multiple streams and they come from discrete distinct places and times in uh in the uk uh uh to uh to disc- two discrete distinct places and times in America. And 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 you can see uh the the persistent influence uh, of these of these migrations. So he he talks about Ford and I think the order of them as the first one is the um the Puritans, the, the Yankees, the roundheads who uh, uh, who are a persecuted religious minority in England, and so they flee mostly from the southeast of England. From Essex and Kent to the uh, Massachusetts Bay, and they bring with them a this a distinctive uh, set of dress and architectural customs and ways of eating and ideas about liberty and how how and why do we marry and what is our religious practice and and uh, all this stuff. They are they are a culture. They're not just English. They're they're a distinctive culture. Um, well, then then you get to Civil War, the uh, Puritan uh, Cromwell riot rises to power the uh, Puritans are suddenly welcome in England. So some of them go back, but uh, who who comes out from from Southwest England from Alfred's old kingdom of Wessex, right? or Royalists who are, who are who are now lost, uh, And uh, the Massachusetts Bay is full of, uh, full of roundheads, so they come to the Chesapeake. And so you get this cavalier migration who eat and dress and worship uh, and think differently. Uh, uh and uh and and then you've got uh you get a, a quaker migration that comes from kind of central north England and has strong scandinavian roots the old danelaw populations uh and they come into the uh up the up the delaware river and into you know sort of delaware new jersey pennsylvania uh and then finally the uh appalachians right and he he uses the term north british borderers although sometimes scots irish is a is a common term, but but people who, who are border people who live on uh, the border of England and Scotland, where for
0: something, some crazy length of time like 600 years, every single came but
3: one uh, on both sides of the border invaded across their land, right? So the, so they are, they're a population whose culture is shaped by that dominant fact, and they come and they find America basically occupied, well, everyone found America basically occupied, but I mean occupied by the Europeans. And so they, uh, so they keep going and they walk past uh, the planters and the Yankees and and uh, they end up hitting, uh, you know, the Appalachian Mountains and settling, and settling there. So, um, sorry, that's a lot. That's a lot of background. But the point is, I, I read this book and I thought, you know, this uh, this is the piece that is missing. What I what I want to do. Is is tell a story in a setting that is America, but it's America as the Holy Roman Empire. It's it's America where uh, where we can still see these discrete cultures, where we can treat these different cultures like we would treat a fantasy race in a in an epic fantasy novel. We can explore them and learn about their different you know their different names, their different worldviews, and their habits and their old hatreds and their obsessions uh and uh and and uh and and an america that is that is organized with with empire an america where you can have on the one hand aldermen and mayors and burghers uh and on the other hand dukes and landgraves uh and uh and so on so uh so there are other there are other influences i'm sure just to just to call one last one out because um I'm rereading this book, and so I, and I need to mention it. So, uh, Susanna Clark's um, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is a uh, is a standalone novel. I think she's working on a sequel. The first one took ten years, so we'll see when the sequel comes out. Uh, it is a wonderful book about the return of magic to England. It is set in. Uh, in the Regency, kind of Napoleonic period, uh, around 1800, 1815-ish, uh, and uh, it is very English, and it is tied up in English ideas uh, about uh, uh, fairies uh, and ask questions like, what is England and what is an Englishman, as well as, what what is English magic like? And uh, and and so another piece of sort of the thinking or the the effort as I was writing Witchy Eye was to say, well, what what would a what would an American counterpart look like? What what would a what would a book look like that asks questions like, what does it mean to be American? What is American magic? What is America? So uh, I don't want to be theme heavy in in writing,
2: but but that is a that's a piece that was in my heart that was writing the story yeah there's i mean uh, we get a lot of this in the book but you know it's 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 a rousing adventure story at heart with with just this background that seeps through uh well let's talk about the story our, our heroine is sarah calhoun uh at least that's the way we first know her she's a very precocious 15 year old and the book is is in among other things a coming of age story of sarah and she's got an odd deformity um can you tell us about Sarah and about the world where she grew up, this little area where she grew up in particular?
3: Yeah, yeah. So she um, – so Nashville. This is an epic fantasy novel that starts in Nashville. Uh, Sarah is a witch. She is a talented hexer. She So by the recitation of nursery rhymes together with the judicious use of, you know, egg yolks and blood and spit and stuff like this, she can accomplish – uh, charm she's she's good at it um she is bright, she is uh funny, she's brave, she's fiercely loyal she's also uh proud, paranoid, xenophobic, and just a little bit mean um and she uh and she's grown up as the youngest daughter uh she believes of iron andy Calhoun who is a uh who's a military hero he's a veteran of the Ohio Forks war. And the Pontiac Uprising, uh, and he is uh, he is one of 13 people in Appalachia entitled to cast a vote for emperor and other key uh, decisions under the 1784 Philadelphia Compact organized by the lightning bishop Benjamin Franklin. So, uh, so he, he is like I was saying, this is an America that looks like the Holy Roman Empire in some ways uh Appalachia is is organized around 13 great families uh, collectively sometimes called the ascendancy uh and so the so the Calhoun family uh sends one elector uh, anytime there is an assembly of electors and and Iron Andy is uh is that guy now um as the uh as his youngest daughter sarah has received uh an extraordinary upbringing so there are uh, traditional ideas, or there a traditional idea about how uh, women and men are to be educated in this culture, and a woman's upbringing and a man's upbringing are different things, and what Sarah gets is, in fact, neither. Uh, what she, she gets is one-on-one tutoring by the elector that includes uh, exotic things like Latin, uh, as well as uh, geography and uh, politics. Um, uh, because uh, I, I, Andy is the only one who uh, in the clan knows the truth of of her origin, which is she is she is not his daughter. Uh, he is he is fostering her and hiding her. And so we meet Sarah. And so Sarah's deformity yeah she has an eye that's never opened, and it is swollen and uh, bulging. And this is the first thing we see about her from another character's point of view on the in the first paragraph, really. Uh, and it's loses pus, and uh, she is self-conscious about it, and a little bit bitter. This is sort of part of her meanness as a defense mechanism. Um, uh, and, uh, and she has this, this bad eye. And, uh, and on the day of the tobacco fair in uh, Nashville, uh, Sarah has come down to uh, sell the electors tobacco. She and her cousin, the Calhoun Young, have come to sell tobacco. Uh, and uh, and uh, and and she is the victim of a kidnap attempt by a, by a Yankee Army chaplain uh, and wizard, and that's how that's how the story that's how the story goes
2: or starts. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, my guess was that we were somewhere around 1800 in the novel. If if you wanted to have some parallel to our world, um, we have some people who did great deeds in the 1750s and 60s who are the old folks now, at least. Um, we're in North America. It's very different. Um, maybe there's a great map that, um, that, that's on the back of the dust jacket by, uh, Riss Davis. Um, I think it's a beautiful map that, that gives you a really good idea of, of all this. Um, and, uh, along with the wonderful Dan DeSantos cover, don't you, are you happy with that? I I hope so.
3: Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah.
2: They don't get much better than that really good yeah um so sarah may be the sion of an important family um it's hard to talk about the story without you know without the revelation that she is um so this monk shows up um thalanes uh i believe you call him i don't know if that's the way to say it um he's come to nashville looking for her uh tell us about him he's a very interesting character
3: yeah, so uh, uh, he is um, a lot of the action that that's uh, in this book is driven by uh, by a, by a former generation. So Sarah is, um, and you're right. I want to I want to minimize the spoilers. There will be some. So it turns out, it turns out Sarah is the uh, is not the daughter of Iron Andy Calhoun. Uh, you learn this early in the story. She yeah. is instead the uh, daughter of the dead former empress, Mad pen Penn. Um, so the um, the the imperial throne is elective, but it has been in the Penn family for the two or three generations since the compact. Uh, the year is 1815, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, so it's about 30, 30 years uh, that the compact's been in force. Uh, as they were generally influential leaders, as essentially the wealthiest people uh, and the biggest landowner for you know a century and a half before the compact. Um, and so Sarah is from is from on one side is from this family. Uh, her her mother uh, Hannah Penn uh, famously was immured, locked away by her brother fifteen years ago. It turns out that's about the time of Sarah's birth um and has been known as Mad Hannah Pen and as the story opens Mad Hannah has just died uh on her father's side Sarah is uh the daughter of the imperial consort uh Han- not the emperor uh but in his own right the king of one of the seven mound builder kingdoms of the Ohio Cahokia the largest and sort of in their uh religion and magic sort of the central of the seven mound builder kingdoms uh and um uh, and he he died mysteriously. so uh so uh, what's happened is that it, the Empress's death is is not accidental. Uh, she has been uh, murdered finally at the end of a long period of imprisonment by her brother, the living emperor Thomas. Uh, and Thomas Penn has learned of the, that Sarah of Sarah's existence. For the first time, and where she is, and and wants her killed, and that's that's one of the basic drivers in the story. Now, Salinay is uh, is a monk. He is a he is a member of the. He is one of what they call the firstborn. So, uh, so, so the, in, in uh, as I said earlier, the book is in in a way about America. The name America does not appear in it. And America doesn't really belong uh, in the book uh similarly, the word "human doesn't appear uh word human being, there are there are two different groups we would think of as human beings there are and uh they're, they're, they they are they they are all the children of adam they all they all have a biblical narrative as uh, part of their origin story but only some of them only humans like you and i uh think of ourselves are the children uh of Eve. Uh, the others are, are sometimes called the children of wisdom, or the firstborn, or Ophidians, and there are stories about them, uh, positive and negative, to tell where they came from. Uh, but some other woman, not Eve. So, so these are the people. These are these are the people who uh, whose kingdoms fill the Ohio, uh, uh, the seven mound builder kingdoms, and thought and they are uh, they're distinctive. They they look human in many ways. They are. Uh, magically more gifted than the children of Eve, uh, they are. Uh, they are allergic to silver, uh, and uh, and Thalines is one of them. He is a monk. Uh, he's a priest, and uh, and he was uh, both the uh, uh, companion of Sarah's father. Uh, when he was a sort of military hero and king uh, riding the borders of his land uh, and then uh, after after his uh, his lord's death, he was the the father confessor the priest to Hannah in her imprisonment and uh, and he is uh, he is uh, he's driven by a couple things uh, one his his order uh, is an extremely uh, has an extremely libertarian spirituality. He's, 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 uh, he's all about persuasion, uh, and, uh, and no coercion, persuasion, uh, and no coercion. And they were their, their origin, their, their patron saint is a, the firstborn named Setis, who was the mayor of Wittenberg and who opposed, uh, who opposed Martin Luther, uh, and, uh, but would not, would not oppose him forcibly at all and, and, and died as a martyr, um, so, uh, so there's there's that element in Thelonious, and the other piece is driving him is is, is guilt because uh, he uh, he let the he let Hannah herself know where Sarah was, and and therefore when Thomas discovered there were children uh, and tortured his sister Hannah to death, uh, Hannah was able to give away. Um, uh, the location of Sarah. And so Thomas is driven by guilt.
2: So he's being um
3: but he in was
2: Yeah, um so Thomas Penn is chasing uh these we, we maybe haven't I don't know if so so Hannah had triplets, and one of those triplets is Sarah. One of those triplets is Sarah. And um these triplets are the heirs because they are by Thomas's brother who was murdered, right? So, so met an untimely Thomas. end somehow.
3: So they are, yeah. So, so they are. Uh, it's not Thomas's brother's sister, Hannah. They are the children of Hannah. They're the children of Hannah Penn, and therefore they are the heirs to the Pen landholding fortune. Now, nobody is the heir to being emperor. That's that's an elective position. But the yeah. Pen landholder has been elected uh, as, as emperor. So. So uh, they are a threat to him uh, as the landowner. They are a threat to him then as a uh, as as someone who could be elected in his stead as emperor. Uh, and on their father's side, they are the heirs to one of the Ohio kingdoms.
2: Okay, I had that backwards. So Hannah is the sister of the pen, and their father was is uh, is the firstborn. Yep. Okay, that's exactly. Right. Right. And and Sarah is half firstborn and, and the firstborn are rather like elves in some way, I would say, correct? Correct me if I'm wrong, Dave. Okay.
3: That is right. Uh pallid, dark haired, magically gifted, slightly not human.
2: hmm So uh well this this sets up sort of um well let's uh, let, this sets up the bad guy. Um, or one of the, the several bad guys who are after Sarah and, um, uh, explain a bit about the bad guys. Angleton, the Reverend Angleton is a piece of work, isn't he? He's, he's quite willing to torture and maim if he's doing the Lord's work.
3: Yep. Yep. That's right. He's, uh, he's, he's, uh, so he, so we, I don't use the word Puritan. Um, one of the sort of features of the story is that there has been no Reformation. Martin Luther was not about Reformation. He, his political controversies actually relate to the firstborn uh, and uh, and to political power. Um, so there's been no Reformation, and in fact, uh, uh, and this is not explicit in Eye, but it is in one of the sequels, uh, the papacy, uh, in fact, has... Has fallen out of uh, existence because the uh, Borgia pope uh, turns Turk to save his life, converted to Islam. And the papacy ended, so you've got a sort of conciliar model uh, of Christianity. So he's not a he's not a puritan, uh, but he is a uh, he is a parson, he is a preacher, he is an army chaplain, uh, and he's been Thomas's companion, uh, the emperor Thomas's companion from their school days. Uh, and uh, and he is he is haunted he is absolutely driven uh, well he's got two big drivers one of them is loyalty to Thomas who uh, when when his Ezekiel angleton's fiance died in a carriage accident young Thomas uh, Thomas saved Ezekiel from from ruin uh, forced the uh, forced Harvard to uh to give him another shot and and ultimately placed him in the in the martinite order where uh, where he is. Um, so he's very loyal to Thomas. He's also really driven by a fear of an obsession with death, again, dating to the the death of lucy his uh, his betrothed uh, and and he is very he sees the world very black and white uh, and he and he yes, is absolutely willing to uh, kidnap and commit acts of violence if he believes that he is doing it uh uh for for the right reasons. Now one of the things that starts to happen to him over the book is he starts to he starts to be forced to uh, in situations that make him uncomfortable and question uh what uh, uh are he's forced to do things that he he would have seen as 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 black um including uh become aligned with one of the other bad guys that we haven't we haven't really mentioned yet or, or only a passing. So uh one of one of the villains of the piece is the, the necromancer Oliver Cromwell. Uh and I love I love Tony. I love playing with history. Um,
2: <laughs> well Cromwell would seem to be a, a very long li- lived uh Oliver Cromwell then I guess because yeah. he's a necromancer.
3: In, in real history, uh, a a fierce wind blew the day Cromwell died, called the Death Wind, uh, and uh, and in and in this world, uh, Cromwell, in fact, uh, transcended death. Uh, and Cromwell, we get some some insight into Cromwell's views later, uh, but Cromwell uh, sees himself as uh not as the villain, uh not not as the necromancer. He, he's he's himself as the hero. He's he is his plan is to liberate the children of Eve uh from from death. Uh and uh and so uh he is manipulating uh he is manipulating Thomas, he is manipulating uh Ezekiel uh Angleton uh he sends uh undead and other kinds of uh, magical servants uh after sarah uh and uh and uh he's one of the one of the one of the movers in the
2: story I was gonna ask you about the <clears throat> our, our wraiths um <laughs> and nasties um a little later but tell us about some of them, like the mockers and the lazars Ooh, scary
3: yeah the, so the mockers are uh so this is part of um part of Cromwell's, uh, sorcery, uh, Cromwell in his, in his taking over of England in his lifetime before he is defeated by, by John Churchill, uh, and, and driven out of England. Uh, part of his forces are, um, are, uh, are, are not human they're sort of the nature of mechanical things and this is a this is a play again, on real history Cromwell called his puritan army the new model army well in in which, yeah, some of those are genuinely models uh including mockers who were who are beings made out of clay uh that that change shape uh the the, the lazars are uh are an, an undead uh they're not, they're not, a, they're not a, they're not a species. They're, they're, they're undead individuals who have made a pact to continue to live. And, uh, and the the sort of leaders of this band of Lazarus who come after Sarah later in the book, uh, include, uh, uh Robert Hook, uh, who was, uh, Cromwell's sorcerer, uh, sidekick, uh, and, and, uh, Black Tom Fairfax. And, uh, and, uh, guys are pale uh, fingernails and toenails that never stop growing and, uh, rotting black eyes that drop worms out of them. So, so, uh, so they're pretty gross. They're pretty gross.
2: And, uh, well, let's talk about a few of the other characters as well, because there's, there's some wonderful characters in the book. There's Calvin Calhoun, who's protective brother, cousin to, uh, Sarah. Um, he is pretty handy to have around especially when the mocker um or two tries to attack he's uh he's he's sort of a lancelot sort of guy i guess
3: yeah yeah he is he genuinely wants to do good and he uh uh cal is a cattle rustler by trade um and uh you know he's New Light. He's a he's a Christian. He's a New Light Christian, sort of light on the saints and uh, heavy on kind of practical, uh, you know, being a good person, uh, uh, sort of spirituality. And uh, and, and Cal is uh, is genuinely a good guy. Now now Calvin, though so he you know he can he can rope, he can start a fire, he can track, he can hunt. He's uh, he's sort of the commercially savvy person among his cousins. So on the the, the the first day in the tobacco fair when the story starts, he's the one who's negotiating with the Dutch and the Igbo and the Castilian traders. Um, so, and Cal is uh, Cal's got a couple things going on. One of them is that he's always been in love with his with Sarah, who he thought was his cousin, uh, and he felt conflicted about that. And so, for him, uh, the the news that she is not his cousin is a wonderful release.
2: He's he's fun, and we can always feel that he's he's watching over Sarah. And there's um there's Bad Bill, another character, Sir William Johnston Lee, um who's sort of a he's he's a bit of comic relief, even though it's kind of a dark comic relief, and he's um he's sort of a tragic comic figure in general, isn't he?
3: Yeah. So so Bill is uh, a cavalier with a capital C, meaning he's he's part of that aristocracy of the Chesapeake. And uh, he is uh, he is a military man, and he uh, uh, and he fought against uh, New Spain with uh, with Sarah's father, and uh, in fact was the head of his bodyguard unit, the Imperial Lighthouse Dragoons, called the Philadelphia Blues. And uh, so Bill is a is a is a gunman uh, and uh, sort of an aristocrat and he has some definite weaknesses uh including uh, foreign language uh and uh, he's he's a little bit of a bigot uh not in a in a mean-hearted way but but you know foreigners are always definitely foreign uh and he's uh, completely incompetent with with money and and uh some of those practical details
2: yeah he has trouble figuring uh, out exactly what that stuff called interest is and how it and it keeps biting him <laughs>
3: baffled by interest, which is a bad thing to be baffled by when you were in debt to money lenders. Uh and that's where we see Bill at the beginning is he's he's fallen. He's fallen really hard. Um because he was he was once a he was once a knight in his in his uh in his view. He you know, he, he wrote to war and he wrote on adventures and he dealt out justice with Sarah's father, the the Lion of Missouri. that's what he, uh her father was called and and bill was uh william Sir william was part of that band um and now he's not now he is uh an alcoholic and he is uh he's basically a thug for hire uh living in new orleans uh, and uh and we see him uh uh on a day when he is uh, planned to uh, commit a murder basically and it is uh, to uh to be for hire because he'll get paid and that will get him out of his debt uh, with, uh, with the bishop's son, uh, son of the Bishop of New Orleans, who was his money lender.
2: sort of the he is uh a fun character but he's also the purpose of the quest that thalanae and sarah and cal are on um and this is a coming of age novel for sarah and uh like i said even though there's a lot of you know just fighting and good adventure as well but uh there's even a hook finn like trip down the mississippi and uh sarah's um encounter with the mississippi kind of uh marks her transformation from a uh, simple country girl in a way to, to what she's going to become. Um, I guess, tell us a little bit about this, this journey that that Sarah's taking on the inside and the outside.
3: Yeah. So, uh, so Sarah's, uh, Sarah's journey is going to take her into places she does not expect. Uh, one of the other major, uh, actors in the book is uh is a god uh, is is uh
2: I was gonna ask you about the beast man and the and the heron king and such. So let's let's talk about that. It's just cool, it's super cool. We need to mention it. So.
3: Yes. So he's a uh, so, so he's a god, uh, and he 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 exists for long periods in a peaceful manifestation, uh, and then uh, and then he and then and then he has a son. so that his son can return as the Peaceful manifestation is over, uh, and and uh, great great destruction is coming. So Sarah's path will ultimately uh, intertwine inextricably with that um, uh, with that God who uh, who mostly rules the Mississippi River and the Ohio. Uh, the uh, the Missouri is this sort of magical fecund but also mutating wilderness. Uh, it and the great green wood around it generates uh, still have American megafauna although we don't see them they're obliquely referred to a bit in book one we'll see them in book two a little uh, but also generate the beast kind who are who are course um, part human part animal but not in any predictable way and no no two beast kind look
2: of the story is will how's sarah going to deal with all this and she's she's finding out that uh that she's uh, being chased by the by horrors and um she she's the possessor of amazing magical talents if only she can harness them and it's just 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 great stuff uh, great epic fantasy stuff um so uh what are you working on at the moment dave will we see more novels set in, i mean i I hope we see more set in the Witchie uh, universe, because this is, uh, although it's a clear, uh, complete novel in itself, um, with some, some real resolution, it's also, uh, obviously there can be more going on, uh, afterwards.
3: Yeah, this is, this is, uh, I'm writing book two, uh, as of, as of right, as of now, I've got a little more than half of book two, um, uh, written. Uh, and, uh, book two, uh, follows Sarah into, um into the Ohio. We see the firstborn more. We learn more about this, uh, kind of magical slash sacred ecology of the gods, uh, that she is, uh, tied to. At the same time, we see more of, uh, we see the other siblings, uh, one of whom is, been uh kept hidden by a Catalan pirate uh in the Gulf. Uh and the other one is living uh as uh, sort of a uh, uh despised orphan figure uh in the home of an insane the Earl of Johnsland who is in who is in which is uh North Carolina actually uh who is uh who's mad uh and and mad for reasons that tie back to uh some of some of Bill's actions, uh, and, and the, the
0: earlier history of some of the other characters. We also get to see more of, uh,
3: more of the cultures that compose, uh, this, uh, this non-America America, uh, more of the, uh, Ohio Germans. Uh, we get to spend some time, uh, with some Algonquin, with an Algonquin character, uh, that I'm very, uh, that I like quite a bit. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's very exciting. That's next. I, I would like. And by the way, uh, there is a I should say this. There is a prequel story up on Bain's website right now, and that's a prequel short story. Yeah,
2: it's uh, right. the way you get to it is um, at the moment it's on it, it's on the Bain com front page, and it links from there. Um, after it goes down, it will be in the free ebook download you can get at Bain eBooks. Um, uh. Free Short Stories twenty seventeen. And that will be up perpetually. You'll always be able to uh to get that. Um uh, it's um De Britannici? Is that how you say it or is it that's the title?
3: De Britannici. Yeah De Britannici. British gods. Uh huh. Um Yeah. And that is a that's a so that's another historical joke. So look so I look, these uh one it's i like Bob Dylan. Like not to flatter myself, but to understand Bob Dylan, you have to realize he's joking all the time, um, and and I I'm also telling sort of little historical and cultural jokes repeatedly, and and I and and I, I they're buried. I'll point out a couple. So so Dave Ritonici is a prequel story. It is about uh, John Churchill. Uh, John Churchill uh, in real life. Uh, was one of the great antagonists of Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King. He led the United Forces of England and the Netherlands and other other non-France powers, and basically stopped, uh, you know, prevented France uh, from entirely taking over Europe. He was, I think, essentially undefeated in the field uh, for a decade. The, this cause seems to me made the Duke of Marlborough, and he built the Blenheim Palace. He is the ancestor of Winston Churchill. Um, so, uh, in in the in the Witchy Eye universe, he is not the great antagonist of Louis the Fourteenth, but the great antagonist of Oliver Cromwell. He is the guy who who uh, rebels against Cromwell's uh, eternal republic and uh, and saves saves England with a question mark, because part of just short story is about one of the hard choices he makes to uh, to prevent England. Uh, from, from 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 being destroyed to to save his forces
0: from uh, one of the necromancer spells, uh, and it involves uh, rejecting
3: Christianity. Uh, so uh, just 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 one little jokes. I'll give away one of my own little jokes. Okay, in real life, John Churchill's father, Winston Churchill, the first Winston Churchill, wrote a book. He was a cavalier. And so uh, he was during the during the uh, civil war in England. He was out of favor, and then King uh, Charles II came back, and like lots of other Cavaliers who had been out of favor, he did things to try to impress Charles II uh, and and get in favor at court. He wrote a book, and the book was a book of heraldry, and the book was called Devis. Britannici. That was the in real life the name of the book written by John Churchill's father, which means something like uh, August British men, something like that. Okay. Um, so in in the Witcher universe, instead he wrote a book called De Britannici, which is British Gods, uh, and this volume is in the story and is part of the inspiration for his son John making then the uh, the decision to return to the fold of Woden and. Uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, Wayland Smith and Hearn the Hunter uh, to stop the necromancer. So I love that story. I'm thrilled it's up on the on website, and I would love to write more of that period, uh, including others. So I'm hopeful. We'll see how the launch goes, but I would love to write many, many, many stories in the setting. Yeah.
2: It's a really, really cool story. Um, and even though you have to maybe go out in the weeds a little bit to get the uh, pun there... <laughs> <laughs> the t- play on words <laughs> but um it's really cool um that th- what's so great about Witchie Eye and the story is um the the ability to read them on a on just a fun adventure level and then to just get into the background uh when you feel like it and uh, the richness of the world um it's just uh it's it's impressive on a lot of levels and just very fun and very entertaining um The book is Witchy Eye by DJ Butler, which is at booksellers everywhere now. You can get it, folks. Uh, Dave, thank you very much for being with us.
3: Thank you, Tony. I had a great time. I appreciate you inviting me.
1: And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobra's. The Colony World's Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses
0: of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a Cobra. It was quickly clear that whether he'd intended such a result or not, Ju had given Johnny the best opening he could possibly have come up with. The other syndics listened closely, even raptly, as Johnny described in detail the Cobra's battle with the Gantua the previous afternoon. He hadn't had that kind of attention in weeks, and if it emphasized how much Aventine needed Cobra power, it surely also reminded them that Cobra goodwill and cooperation were equally vital. It was, he decided, a fair psychological trade-off. The important question, of course, he said when he'd finished, is what could cause a Gantua to behave like that? As of late yesterday evening, we have the answer. He paused, flicking a glance at Darl. The comité was as attentive as the others, but if he saw his scheme unraveling, his expression gave no hint of it. It appears, Johnny continued, that the Gantua was deliberately drugged with a hallucinogenic chemical sprayed directly on its food supply. He paused again but the dramatic outburst he'd half expected never materialized. "'That's ridiculous,' Jor Hemner spoke up into the silence. "'Why would anyone do something like that?' Johnny took a deep breath. "'This was it. "'Perhaps,' he said, locking eyes with Darl, "'to persuade us to accept a cobra presence we don't really need.' Darl returned his gaze steadily. "'Are you accusing me of drugging your gantuas, Syndic?' And have you got any proof? Ju added tartly before Johnny could answer. Because you damn well better not be even suggesting Comité Darl has any connection with this unless you do. The proof is on his ship, Johnny wanted to say. But until and unless Jamie contacted him, he didn't dare invite any scrutiny in that direction. I'm not accusing anyone specifically, gentlemen, he said, shifting his attention between Ju and Darl. But since it seems obvious a crime has been committed and since it's unarguable that the drugged Gantua's existence had at least an indirect effect on yesterday's vote, I would like to suggest the vote be rescinded and the new vote not be taken until all the facts are in on this case. What other facts do you expect to find, an older syndic put in. Or should I say hope to find? It seems to me you've got nothing but a soap bubble of... Gentlemen. Darl's voice was quiet, but there was an edge to it that cut off the syndic in mid-sentence. If I may make a suggestion, it seems to me you are putting too much emphasis on guarding my honor and too little on solving the genuine mystery Syndic Morrose uncovered. If there is indeed clandestine activity under way, it must be stopped no matter who is involved. If on the other hand what we have here is a purely natural phenomenon, you should similarly learn all that you can about it, and as quickly as possible." "'Natural phenomenon?' Johnny snorted if the comité will excuse my scepticism. scepticism is a natural part of science,' Darl interrupted him calmly. "'But before you announce your disbelief too loudly, I suggest you check on the following. One, are all the blussa plants in the Kaskia Valley coated by this drug? Two, is there any trace of it on the surrounding foliage? Three, are there any conditions under which the plants could themselves naturally produce such a drug?' And four, are such conditions currently present? The answers to these questions might prove interesting. He stood up and nodded to Zhu. With your permission, I will continue the equipment set up begun yesterday. If a later vote requires its removal, it can be done easily enough. Of course, Comité, Zhu agreed quickly. Thank you for coming today. Syndics, the meeting is adjourned. And that was it. In half a minute... Darl had completely blunted his attack, an attack the Comité had been remarkably well-prepared for. Tight-lipped, Johnny collected his mag cards and left the room. Halloran, still in Niparin, listened quietly as Johnny described the fiasco over the phone. He sounded awfully sure of himself, he commented thoughtfully. What chance that he's right about this thing being a natural phenomenon? Johnny exhaled loudly. It's hard to imagine him going that far out on a purely speculative limb, he admitted. But if that's what's happening, how come he knew about it and we didn't? Halloran shrugged. You've been sending samples and data back to Asgard for a long time, and they've got far better test and computer simulation equipment than you'll ever see here. Or maybe it was something even simpler. Maybe some of the live plants got dehydrated during the trip. Dehydrated? So you think it's the drought? I don't know what other condition he could be referring to. It's the only environmental factor that's new to you. Johnny gnawed the inside of his cheek. The drought. All right, then. If that's the problem, we'll just have to eliminate it. Halloran cocked an eyebrow. You know a rainmaker who specializes in getting clouds over mountains? Actually, I can do better than that. Hang on. He pressed the lock key on the phone and got a connection to Rankin. Chris answered the screen splitting to include her image. "'Hi, hun. he greeted her. "'Is Gwen there?' "'Hi, Johnny. Callie?' "'Yes, she's in the kitchen.' "'Gwen?' A moment later, Gwen's face replaced Chris's. "'Hi, guys. What's up?' "'Your vacation,' Johnny told her. "'I've got a little job for you and Callie.' Describing what he had in mind took only a few minutes, and it turned out to be the easy part. "'Johnny, that's crazy,' Gwen told him flatly. Do you have any idea of what you're asking? Syndic Hamner will be furious if he catches them, Chris put in from off-camera. Why, Johnny countered. They're both supposed to be in his district, remember? But under his authority, not yours, Halloran said. So you leave your field phones off and plead ignorance, Johnny shrugged. What's he going to do? Bust me back to C5? Probably have you arrested and sent to the Palatine beachhead, Halloran said bluntly. Especially if it doesn't work. "'But if it does work, he won't be able to do a thing without looking like a petty legalist,' Johnny said. "'And I have confidence in you, too.' "'Well, I don't,' Gwen admitted. "'Johnny, you can't do something like this on ten minutes' notice. "'It takes time—time time for studies, time for mapping and emplacement. "'Maps we've got. "'The Molada Mountain Range has been extensively studied. "'As to the rest, we can surely risk a little environmental damage. "'Johnny, there's still one major point you're missing.' Chris moved back into camera range, and Johnny was struck by the odd intensity in her face. "'What you're doing,' she continued softly, "'is planning to bypass legal channels, "'to take a major policy decision away from Ju and the other syndics "'and handle it yourself. "'Don't you see? "'That's exactly what you and Ken fought to keep Chalinor from doing seven years ago.' Johnny's mouth felt suddenly dry. "'No. No, it's different, Chris.' He was trying to take over the whole planet to totally eliminate the Dominion Authority. It's different only in degree, she shook her head minutely. You'll still be setting a precedent that a syndic or a cobra who doesn't like a legal governmental decision can simply ignore it and go his own way. But it's not the same, the words echoed through Johnny's mind. The government's doing something stupid just because an important outsider wants them to. My responsibility is to the people of Aventine. To the people of Aventine. (laughs) Chalinor's old argument. The three faces crowded together in the phone screen were watching him closely. All right, he said with a sigh. Gwen, you and Callie will head out for the Kaskia Valley, but to do feasibility studies only. I'll bring it up with the whole council before we take any real action, but I want to be able to at least show them a solid alternative. "'Chris seemed to sag as the tension left her. "'Thank you,' she murmured. "'He smiled tightly. "'Don't thank me. "'You're the one who was right.' "'He focused on Gwen. "'Chris will get you in touch with Theron too, my assistant, "'who will find you an air car and pilot and whatever else you'll need. "'Check with Chris for anything electronic. "'If she can't find it, she can probably build it. "'You can rendezvous with Callie in Niparin and go from there. "'As for you, Callie,' he held up a finger for emphasis, No matter what Theron or Gwen tell you, any equipment you take is replaceable. If you run into a crazed Gantua up there, don't hesitate to grab Gwen and run for it. Got it? Got it. Halloran hesitated. If it helps any, I think you're making the right decision. Not really, but thanks anyway. Chris? I'll call Theron right away. She nodded, all business now. We can probably have Gwen down to Naparin in three hours or less. Good. Well, keep me posted, everyone, and I'll let you know when you're needed here. And be careful." They all signed off, and for several minutes Johnny just sat there, feeling oddly alone in the quiet office. As if his own career and Jamie's weren't enough, he'd now put Gwen's and Callie's on the target range, too. Could he really be that sure he was right about all this? There wasn't any answer for that. But at the moment there was something he needed more than answers anyway. Flipping on the phone, he called Darl's ship. Jamie Moreau, he told the young ensign who answered. Tell him it's his brother. The other nodded and faded. A minute later, the screen lit up with Jamie's image. Yes, Johnny, he said. His voice was casually friendly, but there was an edge of wariness to his expression. I'd like to get together with you later, Johnny said. Dinner tonight, maybe, whenever you get off duty. The wariness deepened. Well, No inquisitions, no favors, no politics, Johnny promised. I'd just like to be with family for a while, if you've got the time. Jamie smiled faintly, the tension easing from his face. There's always time for the important stuff, he said quietly. Let's make it lunch, that same restaurant in half an hour. Johnny smiled back. Already the weight around his shoulders was lifting a little. I'll be there.
1: That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Jedkowitz praise thanks and gratitude to tony daniel and dave butler for sitting down all those many years ago to discuss witchy eye and good night tony daniel wherever you are this is david f Shardard coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of texas join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars